am really excited about starting this new sermon series called Conduit for Change. And the whole idea behind this series is that we're going to look at some real issues in our community and in our world and talk about how we as a church can be a conduit for change when it comes to dealing with those things. And my hope is that by the end of this series, we will have come face to face with some real issues in our community, and then we will decide to act on them to make this world a better place, to be a conduit for change in our communities. So this first week, we are talking about racism, and we've divided this conversation into three different parts. The first part, I'm going to introduce you to my friend Maggie, who uh, I first met her in a dialogue on race conversation, and uh, her stories and her knowledge just really changed a lot about my understanding when it comes to racism. So the first part, we'll be hearing from her, and uh, uh, we'll be tackling the question of what is racism and how does that uh, unfold in our community. The second section will be a conversation that I'm going to have with two friends of mine, Katie and Bryson. You'll get to know, meet them a little bit more when we get to that section. But in that conversation, we're going to talk about our um, experiences with racism. And my hope is that you will be able to see what a healthy conversation on race looks like. One where we can challenge each other and push each other and still be respectful of each other. Now, there's a couple of things you need to understand, and I'll share this again later. But... In that conversation, we have trust amongst each other. We, we can uh, hear criticism from each other and know that it's not being done in, in, in evil with, with any evil intentions uh, intended. So uh, as you think about this conversation, know that I am approaching this conversation through that lens. I don't have any evil intentions towards anybody listening to this sermon cast. I really uh, care about all people who are listening to this, and I hope that we can have a conversation, a healthy conversation, where all people feel heard and we're able to move forward. In the third section of this sermon cast, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, my own experience with racism, and we're going to look about uh, what does the Bible say about uh, people who are good or bad, because that tends to be our natural tendency to feel like uh, if, if you are racist, you're bad. If you're not racist, you're good. But maybe it's deeper than that. So we're going to look at what the Bible says about that. I am really excited for this conversation, and I hope that uh, you will uh, gain some new knowledge. I hope it will encourage you to have conversations, and I hope maybe you will look at Scripture and each other differently because of this. So without further ado, let me introduce you to my friend, Maggie. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to uh, have this conversation on uh, race and uh, and just the, the what we can do about it and what it even looks like. So I invited my friend Maggie to, to jump on this call with me and uh, for her to tell us a little bit. And, and I'll tell you all, I had a conversation. I was part of a cohort with her years ago, and she helped me see so many things that I hadn't even thought about as a person of color. And I'm hoping that... Um, uh, there were there's when when I realized a whole bunch of things, I was able to see the issue differently and and maybe make a difference. And so that's what I'm hoping that this conversation can do for you. So Maggie, would you tell us who you are and maybe what you do? Sure. So hello, my name is Maggie Conero. Um, I work as the program director for Serve Louisiana, which is a local AmeriCorps program. I'm from Baton Rouge. Grew up here. Care a lot about the city. Um, and also have a lot of concerns and um, I don't want to say it's a love-hate relationship, but I see the opportunity for a lot of areas where um, Baton Rouge can grow. And so I'm involved with a lot of organizations that I think does really good work in different areas to address some of the issues and some of the pressures on our families. 
Um, one of those organizations is Together Baton Rouge. I'm a leader with Together Baton Rouge. And I'm also a facilitator with Dialogue on Race Louisiana, which is the organization that um, where Fernie and I met through. So um, Dialogue on Race Louisiana looks at specifically institutional racism. And there's a few different programming that they offer. Fernie and I met through what's called the original series, which is a six-week educational series um, with the goal of eliminating racism. And so, yeah, that's um, that's part of how Fernie and I first got connected. It was a fantastic course. I recommend anybody who is interested to take it. It was really helpful. I still have my uh, my book, and I still look through it quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Maggie, I've, I've uh, recently read a book called White Fragility. I don't know if you've read it uh, or heard of it, but um, one of the things that she started off the conversation with was talking about her definition of racism. And I thought it was, I think that's so important when it comes to talking about racism between people, because I think sometimes this can be a hard conversation for a lot of people. And part of what makes it difficult is that unless we're all starting from the same uh understanding of what we're talking about then it just gets really complicated and things like get confusing and conflict begins to arise totally i was wondering could you what is your definition of racism and how it plays out so um racism i i really understand racism as racial prejudice plus institutional power equals racism or institutional racism um, that is a formula or a definition that we introduce in the first session of Dialogue on Race. And I totally agree with you. I think um, talking about racism, kind of agreeing or coming to a place of understanding about terms and definitions is really paramount at the beginning of a conversation because racism, you know, the way that term is used in media and um, all around us, you can, you quickly realize that people say it and they mean different things. Um, there was an article in the Atlantic and an author said that uh, racism, the definition of racism is as vague as the definition for dating. So somebody could say, oh, I dated that person and you don't know if they were together exclusively for 10 years. It could mean that they went on two dates. It could mean all sorts of things. So I think similarly, um, in the United States, despite racism being such a f foundational issue here, we we don't really have a common understanding or agreement on it, and so it's important to kind of define that at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So can can you say it one more time your definition? Sure. the The simple formula that um, that we go back to is um, racial prejudice plus institutional power equals institutional racism. And so racial prejudice, um, really there's there can be racial prejudice in any direction, one could say. Um, and, but when you add institutional power, it's a, that's an important piece for racism because in the United States, the institutional power has always been with, um, with white people. That's how it was set up. And so, um, you know, that's, uh, that definition of racism implies, or, you know, really goes along with the, the truth that there's no such thing as, um, reverse racism or anything like that. 
Yeah. I, I was trying to find my, in my notes, but I, I don't think I, I have the right ones in front of me, but like it was a, a statistic I read that, um, what was it in 2010 when the, the previous census was done? It was like 72% of the population was white. And uh, let me see, I have 13% was black. And yet when it comes to political systems, it's like, it was like every statistic I read was like between 96 and 99% white. And so like, that's the institutional power of, um, that I find fascinating. Like the, the um, people of color in this country don't have rep equal representation in politics or in government or in uh, organizations and therefore can't advocate for themselves um, as easily as uh, white people. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we see that playing out here in Louisiana, even right now. That's that's the numbers you just said, the 13 percent. That's for the national average. For Louisiana, it's 30 percent. And when you look at a city like Baton Rouge, it's about 50 percent. Um, and so even right now, we see that playing out today, February 1st. I don't know when this is going to be. <laughs> but um, today, February 1st is the first day of um, of redistricting here in Louisiana. And and so part of what people are advocating for is that we um, reshape political representation to represent the racial makeup of the state. And so um, one of the major asks for equity, really, and for representation, like you're saying, is um, for three congressional seats uh, for the House of Representatives, because um, right now we've got you know, there's a gerrymandered map and we, there's just one uh, black district for our state. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, what, what other ways have you seen this issue of racism play out in our community? So um, kind of like you were describing before, I think for me, my understanding of racism, dialogue on race was really transformative for me in coming to understand how it, um, how it shows up in our world and to really zoom out and to not look so much at interpersonal relationships or personal racism, but really to understand it institutionally and systemically. And so in that way, I really see racism in a lot of institutions, um, the vast majority of institutions and systems in this country. But you could look at our education system and right now, specifically in Baton Rouge, um, you know, there's a lot of tension around our public schools and private schools and now also charter schools. And so redistricting is happening there as well at, in our um, in the school system, the East Baton Rouge Parish School System. We can also look at housing. Um, housing is something that and real estate is something that impacts a lot of uh, different aspects of life, including education. And so when you learn about institutions and kind of the history of race and how, how that was created and how it was baked into our institutions and our policies, and you learn about issues like, or um, historical pieces like redlining and, and how neighborhoods were carved out in such a way where they are segregated, even though legal segregation ended, you know, in the 60s, it was supposed to. But when you look around Baton Rouge, you can still see that our city appears pretty segregated in a lot of ways. And so um, really looking at that and then 
asking questions, looking at that and kind of zooming out and saying, okay, well, what brought us here? What are the, what influences have led us to, to this? Oh, yeah, that's such a good point. You know, one of the, one of the statistics I read was in most neighborhoods, once they reach about 30 to 35% um, diversity, that that's when flight, white flight begins to happen. Like the community begins to change. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting because like I'll speak from my personal experience. When I, I moved into my neighborhood, um, that was one of the things that like, as a person of color, I always think of is I'm part of that 33%. Like I'm part of the reason why some people might eventually leave this neighborhood. And even um, stuff that's not as explicitly said or done, um, like we see it play out in our communities in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah there have been a few um, news reports about people in the United States, maybe a black couple selling a house, and when they remove, um, you know, any pictures or anything that shows that it's the homeowners are black, that the house appraises for more. And so... I mean, you can see the economic impact of how these racial prejudices play out in institutions when given that institutional backing. I mean, there's real implications for people and and our cities and society for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I want to ask you a question. I, I, you and I hadn't talked about this question before, but one of the things that, I, that I'm going to share later in this, this uh, podcast is that um, when we talk about racism, there tends to be this good-bad binary of uh, being associated as racist is instantly seen as I'm a bad person. But there's this quote that's been circulating on Instagram of um, do the best you can until you know better and then do better. And I've just been thinking about those two things a lot when it comes to racism. I think one of the things I hear a lot of people is quickly sh they shut down the conversation when they hear about stuff like housing or in schools or in any situation. And if, I think if we can look past this idea of um, when we talk about racism, we're not necessarily, necessarily saying you're a bad person. It's saying there's a system in place that's affecting a group of people. How can we make it better? And that's at least my interpretation. What, what would you say to that? Totally. Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect. I just finished this training um, through an organization based out of California called Visions Inc. It was an incredible training. And the term they use is um, when we're, you know, behaving or acting or living outside of awareness, because basically any ism or, you know, system of oppression, it's an ongoing process to understand our own roles in it, our own experiences, um, how that influences how we see things, how that influences what we've experienced and how it influences our understanding. And so it's really on us to, you know, understand that the learning journey is never over. And, um, and also, you know, being conscious of, um, of when you're living or, you know, just have sometimes aha moments happen and it's like, okay, wow. Yeah. I was really speaking from outside of awareness. And as you become aware of stuff, just kind of incorporating that into your understanding um, is really pivotal for sure. I think that's huge. And I think that goes in hand in hand too with, um, you know, I think we talk a lot about how 
um, there's a lot of talk within work around racism and eliminating racism about, it's not just about intention, it is about impact. And so, you know, an institution might have a policy or a practice where the intention isn't to um, limit access to people of color or um, to black people and, but that's the end result. And so um, I think, you know, your intention is good and, or like if somebody's intention is good and to do better, that, that is important. And also living within awareness and behaving within awareness and understanding means that as you become more aware that you do adjust um, maybe behaviors or thinking or how you see things. And the other pieces, we're all parts of institutions. And so a lot of us have significant ways that we can influence um, influence institutions. And institutions are really important in uh, society. I mean, it's where we live, work, play, worship. And so we get to determine um, you know, what kind of institutions we want to be a part of and, and participating in something like dialogue on race, I think, you know, for me, it definitely helped me better understand um, where there might be barriers for access along racial lines, understanding how they came to be and really looking at, okay, and now what can we do about it? How, how do we remove these barriers? Um, so that we can have a more equitable, have an equitable setup. I mean, that's really, I think a lot of people's preference. And so yes. becoming aware and working towards it is important. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. So uh, let me ask you just uh, in, uh, in a quick nutshell, like if somebody said, okay, I wanna do something about racism in our community to make it better, what, what would you recommend they do? Um, I think, you know, learning and educating oneself about history. Um, there are a lot of really great resources, really great books, podcasts. Um, I think Dialogue on Race is a great route. It's a structured, facilitated dialogue with um, other folks in the community. Right now, it's all transitioned to Zoom. So when Bernie and I did it, it was in person. Um, but the six-week original series takes place ongoing. And so I, I think, you know, having, doing those readings and participating in a dialogue for a lot of people that structured setup is really transformative. And I've certainly experienced that and, um, and I've witnessed it many times for a lot of different kinds of folks. And so I think learning and, you know, helping taking that step to being in awareness. What was the, what was the quote that you had seen? What was the expression they used? It was something on, along the lines of, do as best as you can, and when you learn better, like do better. Yeah, so there's resources like Dialogue on Race to help you learn better, and um, and so I think you know coming to understand that is is a really huge part for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. I know this has been really helpful for me. I I'm gonna second what you said. Dialogue on Race is fantastic, and I still reference it a lot. And I would like for us as a church to do a dialogue on race together, especially our, our leadership team and our small groups, because it really does open the, the a door for uh, conversations and stuff that like we didn't even I didn't even realize until we had that conversation and just you're able to hear each other in a safe space. And so I, re I really recommend taking that class. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I, uh, I respect a lot of all, not a lot, all the work that you do. Uh, you have been a, a person who really fights for and, and talks about um, you know, making change in our community. And I know I'm not the only one who looks up to you when it comes to that. So, so thank you so much for all the work that you do and for your willingness to come on here and share with us. Of course. Thank you so much. I hope this was helpful. Very much. Yeah. Well, hey, everyone, I am. Uh, I told you all that our second section of this sermon cast would be a conversation between a couple of friends of mine and I. And so I'm going to uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So, uh, Katie, why don't you go first? Hey, guys, I'm Katie and I'm the director of operations uh, here at Mid City Church, and I'm glad to be here with y'all today. I'm Bryson. Uh, I'm also glad to be here. I am a paralegal at a law firm downtown. Awesome. Well, um. One of the reasons I asked Bryson and Katie to be here is because um, one, uh, one of the things that's that, let's just be honest, uh, having a conversation about racism is very difficult and it can be kind of awkward and, and uh, it's just, it's hard. Uh, the three of us were having a conversation before we jumped on this and like even then it was a little bit difficult. And so we wanted to show you what it's like to have a conversation about racism in general and maybe you'll uh, pick up on some um, tools or some ways to have conversations about it. And my hope is that, um, you know, the three of us know each other, we trust each other, we like each other, uh, we, we've allowed each other to push us. Um, and so my hope is that as you see us having a conversation or you hear us having a conversation, that maybe you will be able to have a conversation as well. So I, I, I asked Katie and Bryson a question and we'll just kind of see where it goes from here. But the question I was, I've been wrestling with is, how have you dealt with racism in your life? And what has it been like uh, talking to people about those experiences? So does anybody want to go first? I can go. Okay. So I, of course, always knew that racism existed um, all my life, but it wasn't um, very often that I experienced racism until um, one, I moved here to Louisiana. Um, and I used to live in the North. It's a very different culture and different um, spread of um, different races. And then I started dating a person of color and having more friends that were not white like me and just uh, seeing what they experienced, hearing about their experiences and sometimes being a part of those experiences alongside them has taught me so much about how racism is still very prevalent today. I mean, for me, um, I, racism was always like a touchy subject growing up. Uh, not in my home, but in the out, like outside of my home in the neighborhood that I lived in, you didn't see a whole lot of people of color in that neighborhood. So those conversations really didn't happen because it didn't affect them as much as it affected us. But it was talked about in my in my household with my parents and my brother. Um, but as far as like, not just my neighborhood, but like my outside life up until I want to say to my college time, it was always difficult to speak on just because being a person of color and you bring up racism, to me, it I always got the notion that oh, I'm just bitter about something. And because I can't complain about what I want to complain about, I throw race into it. So 
the proverbial race car was always a big issue that I had to deal with. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that, Bryson, because um, when I was working on my sermon for this week, one of the, the – there's a part of my sermon where I, I say, if, uh, if you're a person of color, this is directed to, the, to you. And then right before that, though, I, I had – I was what I wanted to say was, if you're white, hear this suggestion. But what I wrote was, if you're not a person of color, this is for you, right? And, and like I knew that I wanted to use the word white, but there was a part of me that was like, people are going to assume I'm, I am, um, like you said, bitter about something, or I'm too aggressive, or people are going to tune me out when I say something like that. And like I really struggled with. I want to say, like, I just need to be direct. But there was a part of me that felt like, as a person of color, I'm not allowed to, like, directly speak to people, to white people. Like, and I say that half jokingly, right? But, like, like I felt like I was, I have always felt like I have authority when it comes to preaching the scriptures, right? Like, I've been ordained. I've studied them. Um, like, I feel like I can take that authority, which is what the bishop said to me when I was ordained. But when it came to using this one word, I felt like I had no authority because I guess in the back of my mind, I saw myself as a little bit lesser. Like, who am I to speak to white people? And that was that was tough. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I'll share a little bit about my story. Um, I think for me, I grew up in a predominantly Hispanic community. And so I knew that racism was out there, but I never really came face to face with it knowingly. Like I was there, I just knowingly. It was when I moved to Oklahoma and then Chicago and then Louisiana that there was things that happened that I was like, this just isn't right. Like I realized people who were white did not go through the same things. And so like the very first time that I remember, uh, when I was in Oklahoma, the they passed the House Bill uh, 1604, I think, something like that. And it basically said that cops had the authority to pull you over if they thought you were illegal. And in my fraternity, I had one fraternity brother who was illegal who was from Mexico and one fraternity brother who was illegal who was from Canada. Only one of them really worried about this new house bill. Because my fraternity brother from Canada, he was like, I'm white, I have blue eyes, they're never going to pull me over. And it was in that moment when I was like, yeah, like people of color have a much harder time, let me say it this way, there are a lot of systems in place that hold people of color back, mm -hmm. that, that pinpoint people of color and make it harder for us. And that was something that I had to wrestle with a lot in college because it, it was in that moment that I realized or I felt like as a person of color, I am inferior to white people, uh, at least in the eyes of a lot of people. Yeah. What What other experiences have y'all had? Or, or let's talk about this, like conversations that you have had with people about race. What have those conversations been like? For me, on my part, it's a lot of listening like active listening and trying to further my understanding of what people are going through um and that has been really eye-opening for me um so i just try to be a really good listener 
and uh, not try to assume what people feel about a specific situation, but just to ask like clarifying questions um, and then try to make better decisions going forward after I hear about other people's um, experiences. Like when I talk to my fiance, who is a black man, um, he has very different experiences than I do. And so um, it's really helpful for me to listen and make sure that I am not making people feel the way that other people sometimes make him feel. Um, and it helps me to do better. You know, Katie, I'm going to jump in on this, Bryson. Sorry. Um, I was reading, I've been reading this. One of the books that has really informed this conversation for us has been a book called White Fragility uh, by D'Angelo. And one of the things she talks about is there was a um, like a diversity workshop that she did. And she asked the question to people of color in the room, what would be most helpful uh, for you in the room um, when it comes to dealing with racism. And one person, she, I think she said it was a black man, she said, he said, uh, if somebody would be willing to at least listen to my experience, it would be revolutionary. Hmm. And I just like, I had to put the book down for a second because I, I thought like that's so true. Like so many times I've wanted to tell people, hey, this is, this is what's happening or this is what happened or this is how I felt. And even having that conversation uh, gets brushed off because it's uncomfortable and it makes us uh, look internally and admit that maybe I did something wrong. And uh, I just, I don't know, like when you said that uh, part of it for you is listening, like I wanna say thank you for that because it's so easy to not listen. And sometimes I think when it comes to, to dealing with racism, like just listen, that, that's a huge first step. Just listen to people's experiences. Don't make it about you, don't make, just listen to what happened and, and work through it and wrestle through it together, yeah. Yeah, I feel like the conversations that I've had with uh, people of a different race about racism, um, they all sometimes, well, I can't say all and sometimes the same way, but some experience these people come into the situation with a preconceived notion of I'm angry because, or you don't like me because. And like Katie said, listening is a very key deter uh, a very key part of it, but also coming into any conversation with an open mind always makes that conversation grow into what it should be. But the simple fact that when I'm having these conversations with people the one thing I always try to harp on, I was like, what has this person from this particular race done to you, which makes you not want to like the entire race? And sometimes it's a personal experience. Sometimes it's unfortunately been handed down. But my whole thing is education about a particular topic or a particular like incident when it comes to racism, because I personally feel that people are afraid of what they don't know. Or just because someone's different, they haven't had any interaction, that's all of a sudden your guard is up for whatever reason it needs to be. And so unlike Haiti, like racism has been around for quite a bit. I was raised in the South, grew up in a town called Destrehan, 20 minutes from the New Orleans airport. And I've experienced both in front of me and 
what they like to call closet racism, where it's not exactly pushed at you. But, I mean, I've been followed in stores. I've been accosted by law enforcement, managers, any and pretty much most of the spectrum. But at the soul point, when I first started to happen to me, yeah, I would get upset. I would get angry. And so I think I was about 22 when it dawned on me. I was like, I don't particularly understand, or these people don't particularly understand what's going on or how we can have a conversation without it being one side versus another side. Yeah. You know, you, 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 uh, you share your experience. Uh, there was one time Susie and I were, uh, and our location doesn't matter, but uh, we were at a store and this lady in front of me, um, she turned around and Susie and I were standing side by side and she looked at Susie, she looked down at Susie's ring, um, looked up at me and then did this face of disgust and turned around. And like from what you shared, like that stuff happens to people of color all the time. Like I'm a brown person, I'm, a, I'm Hispanic and I get her all the time. So I can just imagine how much worse it is for, uh, for black people. And um, that, you know, I, I'll speak for myself with a whole bunch of stuff that happens. Well, let me backtrack. I am always more than willing to sit down and have conversations with people about, okay, this is what it's like to be a person of color in the U.S. and in the South. I think the one thing I would add to it is, like, because stuff like this happens all the time, well, not all the time, very often, we'll, we'll say that, because it happens so often, there are days when I just, like, don't even want to have a conversation with people because, like, I need to process through some things, right? Like, I am, I'm either frustrated about something or I'm not in the best place uh, mentally to, like, have a conversation about it because I'm still hurting over something. And there was something, I can't remember which one of you said it, but um, in the book it talks about how the burden of understanding of like the issue and educating yourselves, like that's, that's another thing I would add to having conversations. Like there are tons of resources out there to, to understand what it's like to be a person of color from people of color who have written of their own experiences. And so one thing I want to caution people is like, don't just be like, oh, let me go talk to my one black friend or let me go talk to my one brown friend. Like, obviously do it and like, that's helpful, but don't let that be your end all be all because there's so many resources out there. And just like I would never go to like to Katie and be like, hey, tell me what it's like to be white on behalf of all white people, right? Like we would never say that to not put that kind of burden on your friends or colleagues to be like, well, I have this one person of color who's in my life. Uh, let me go put a burden on them to teach me what it's like, the full experience of what it's like to be a person of color. Yeah. Well, is there anything else y'all want to share? I know we're running a little low on time, but anything else y'all want to share about your experience with racism or our experiences of talking to each other about this? I mean, other than just conversations key. Like, assumptions never work out. Yeah, I like that. Well, hey, I, I want to thank you guys for, for being willing to have a, uh, this conversation with me. I know that if uh, uh, we were sitting in the same room together, we could probably talk about this for hours. Um, so I just wanted to give people like a little glimpse of what it's like to have a conversation about race and some of the things that, that uh, you know, are said and shared and experienced. And um, thank you both for being willing to, to share your stories and your experiences. And yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.
As a person of color, one of the struggles that comes with talking to people about racism is that most people don't even want to have a conversation about racism in the first place. So what tends to happen, uh, at least when I'm trying to have conversations with people about racism, is that once the other person gets uncomfortable, I hear a variation of one of these three comments. One of them is, I don't see color. Now, I hate this response because as a person of color, I want you to see color because the color of my skin is a big part of who I am. If you don't see color, then you don't see me fully. And so I, I hate hearing that response. Another response I hear a lot is that racism wasn't a thing where I grew up because my parents taught me to see everyone as equals. Now, this response really drives me crazy because uh, we don't know how to see people as equals. Uh, we all carry some sort of prejudice that society on its own has taught us without the help of our parents. So if you don't believe me, think about this. We view males and females as different. We view rich people and poor people as different. We view celebrities and average Joes as different. We view Ivy League graduates and community college graduates as different. Society teaches us without any help from our parents to carry prejudice when it comes to seeing people differently. And if we do this with everything else in our lives, the reality is that no matter how much you think you don't, you also see, um, you also see a difference between people of color and people who are white. It's just a natural lesson that all of us receive from this world. Now, here's a third comment that I hear a lot. Are you saying that I'm racist? I'm offended you would even think of that about me. So this response always gets to me because uh, when I tell people that something they did hurt me, uh, their response is to make me feel bad for what they said in the first place, right? And all of a sudden, instead of talking about the, the thing that hurt me, I have to sit there, comfort the other person while uh, dealing with this pain uh, on my own, right? So it's just when people say that, it's really hard to, to move forward. Now, look, I get it. It's difficult to talk about racism, especially when you're the one being called out. So I understand this natural reaction to defend yourself. Robin DiAngelo, in her book, White Fragility, mentions that the reason it's so hard to talk about racism is that once a person feels called out, they feel like they're being labeled as bad people for having the audacity to unintentionally say or do something racist. Now, she calls this uh, the good-bad binary, which basically means that throughout history, we have labeled extreme actions uh, like uh, from groups like the KKK and other white supremacy groups as racist and therefore bad. The flip side of this binary says that people like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr., they are social justice activists and therefore they're good. Now, D'Angelo argues that when talking about race, the moment people feel like they're being accused of doing something racist, they also feel like they're being labeled as bad and grouped with all these white supremacy groups that we talked about. Hence, the good-bad binary. Now, while our natural tendency uh, during conversations about race is to default to this binary, I don't believe it's very biblical. Let me explain. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says this, God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them. Now, this is a really small verse, but I find something very powerful here. 
Terence Fretham, a professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary, argues that the image refers to the entire human being and not just some part, such as reason or will. He also says that the image functions to mirror God into the world, to be God to the world as God would be. In other words, he says it's, uh, th- this image of God it calls us to be an extension of who God is. Now, if this is true, and I believe that it is, then that means that by definition, we don't live in a good-bad binary, but rather we are good people who sometimes do bad things. See, if we're created in God's image, then we're naturally good people because God is good and we were created in the image of God. Therefore, we are good. The opposite of this would be to say that because we do bad things, we are bad, but that just doesn't click with uh, being created in the image of God because God is not bad. God is good. Now, this doesn't mean that bad doesn't happen because it does. People do bad things all the time, including but not limited to when dealing with racism. But doing something bad doesn't change the fact that our God-given nature is good. The reality is that good people sometimes go against their nature and do bad. They do bad things. But at the end of the day, at their core, they are still good people. Now, here's why I share all of this as we end our sermon cast today. If you are white and someone tries to have a conversation with you about something that you did or said that hurt them. It is completely normal to get defensive and feel like you're being called a bad person because it feels like who you are at your core is being denied. But in those moments, remember that becoming defensive is not helpful. So when you feel those emotions bubbling up, I want you to do two things. First, remind yourself that you were created in the image of God and therefore you are good. And once you have reminded yourself of this truth, use that opportunity to hear the other person, to put aside your own defensiveness and grow from the situation and the conversation so that you can more fully live into your goodness. Now, if you're a person of color and are on the other side of the conversation, this is where I find myself all the time, and you're trying to have a conversation with someone about race and how something they did or said hurt you and they're just not hearing you out, it's okay to do a couple things. You can walk away from that situation. You can also keep trying to explain yourself, hoping that eventually there will be a breakthrough. And there's a whole bunch of other things you can do. But here's the one thing you cannot do. You cannot convince yourself that the person on the other end of this conversation is nothing but bad because then you will have failed to see God in them. As difficult as it is, and I speak from experience, I can share countless stories At their core, no matter how much the other person or persons have hurt you, they are still created in the image of God, and therefore, at their core, they are capable of doing good. So don't give up on helping people uh, live more fully into their goodness in difficult conversations like this. Now look, I know that this is all an oversimplification, and I get that. I know that even with the solution that I offer, There are some situations and instances where the opposite uh, looks and is true. There are some instances and situations that are just harmful, and you have to remove yourselves from them. But hear me say this. I do not believe that seeing the God-given goodness in all people is the end-all be-all when it comes to racism. Let me just throw that out there, okay? But I do believe that at the very least, seeing the goodness in all people can provide a small step forward in helping us combat racism in this world.
Friends, if you want to be a conduit for change when it comes to racism, a good first step is to learn to have conversations about the issue and to hear how others have been hurt by it. It's even important to educate yourself on the issue and the very things people of color bring to your attention. And when those conversations get tough, when you want to run away from them because you feel attacked or you get frustrated because you do not feel heard, remember that all people were created in the image of God, which means that our God-given nature is good. And maybe, just maybe, understanding this can lead us towards having more life-giving and transforming conversations that will become a conduit for change when it comes to racism in this world. Amen. I hope you found this sermon to be meaningful and relevant to your life. If you'd like to dive deeper, I invite you to visit midcity.church slash sermoncast and click on the current sermon series. There you can find a home sheet for this sermon that includes the scriptures that we talked about, questions to wrestle with, and a challenge to live out this week. While you're on the website, if you'd like to make a financial contribution to our ministry here at Mid-City Church, you can click the Give button in the top right corner. If you're new to the sermon cast, I invite you to text the word HERE, H-E-R-E, to the phone number 225-307-0662 and fill out a Connect card so that we can get to know you. I'm so glad you joined us today, and I look forward to seeing you next week.